You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. The sky was falling. It was 2007 and we were in the midst of what is now recognized as the Great Recession. And I was pissed. I'd watched all my investments carefully placed and managed funds by my trusted investment advisor, Flop. My stance at the time was, don't just stand there, do something. It was a stance that would change over the years as I got more financially savvy and started to allocate my assets in long-term investments that would rise and fall with the economic tides, but hopefully continue to reach new heights in the end. Don't just do something. Stand there. Most of us believe that we are staring down a cliff that will soon become our next recession. We have no idea whether right or wrong, or if right, how deep and why this recession could be. Every one of us at the moment is standing still and waiting to see what will happen. When it comes to our investments, should we do something and pivot, or should we do nothing and stand by our trusty and true long-term asset allocations? I bet my guest today has an opinion. Joseph Ho graduated from Iowa State University after serving in the Marine Corps. He worked in corporate finance and real estate before starting a career in investment analysis. He has appeared on Bloomberg and CNBC and led a team of equity analysts for a venture capital research firm. He holds a master's degree in business and the chartered financial analyst designation. His YouTube channel, Let's Talk Money, has over 550,000 subscribers. Joseph, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's start with the basics. Is the sky falling? And if so or not, how do we know? Doc, it's great to be here again. Thank you for having me. And I, I, I never want people to panic out of stocks, and we'll get into that, why that is. We are, in my opinion, and in many's, definitely heading into a recession. We have never been at this point where, at a point where the Fed needs to draw back so much out of the economy to get the inflation down. And yet employment is so good that it is going to make it so much harder for the Fed to do that. Basically, what the Fed needs to do is bring inflation down from a 40-year 40 40-year 40 high back to the early 80s and into the 70s when we had inflation this high. But it needs to do that while you know limiting, kind of tamping down the the, the jobs picture, right? The employment and, and un, unemployment. Because as long as unemployment is also at historic lows, wages are rising so fast, and employers are having trouble finding workers, then that inflation picture is going to be so much higher. If you remember back 40 years, well, if some of us remember back 40 years when inflation was this high, then the jobs picture wasn't nearly as good. So the Fed did have a little bit more leeway. Here, they're going to have to be so much more aggressive and raising rates, raising interest rates so much more aggressively and higher that it is it is very hard to see how they're not going to choke off the economy and send us into a recession. Now, that said, again, I think there is... The bigger problem is with investors trying to invest into that, making some rash decisions with their portfolios instead of maybe stepping back, thinking about it a, a little bit more in some of the strategies that we can talk about, you know, re- really getting the best of wo- both worlds, you know, keeping their money working for them right now, but then saving some aside to get, you know, prices as they do drop. We're going to talk in a moment about your credentials and what a chartered financial analyst is, but you said something that I want to get a little more granular on. Help me understand, help our audience understand this a little better. You said one of the big differences between the 1980s and today is 
both times we had issues with rising inflation, but today the jobs picture, in a sense, there's much less unemployed than there was back in the 1980s. Why is that so significant? Well, okay. So the Federal Reserve, the nation's central bank, really determines interest rates, right? They set their own Fed funds rate, and that affects all the other interest rates, right? Corporate borrowing, it affects consumer loans, mortgages, things like that. And they have two mandates, two, just two things they need to do. They need to keep unemployment low, but also keep inflation low, right? They need to protect the jobs picture, but also protect the value of the dollar with that inflation. And they do this by raising and lowering rates, as well as you know buying bonds and some other stimulus measures, but mostly by raising and lowering their own interest rate. And so, you know, when inflation is so high, 8.6%, highest since 1981. And again, some of us remember, us old timers here, but going back into, you know, the 70s where inflation just exploded up to up and beyond double digits in the United States. But the, the jobs picture was, wasn't so great. So, so what the Fed could do back then, it could raise interest rates and, and it wasn't, it wasn't terribly difficult to to really affect the economy, right? Raising interest rates slowed down consumer spending. The the jobs picture was already a little bit weaker, so it slowed that down as well. And they were able to bring interest rates down. And, and we've had falling interest rates for basically about 30 years, really. The Fed is looking at, okay, the jobs picture is so much stronger. There are something like 11 million jobs open and only 8 million people unemployed looking for jobs. That is causing, obviously, wages to increase as, as companies compete for fewer workers. So even as we hear some, you know, especially technology companies, some other companies saying they're going to be starting to lay off people, they're going to start you know, slowing their hiring, we are still at a very strong jobs picture and very low unemployment. So the Fed is going to say, okay, you know what? We don't have to worry about the jobs picture. We can be singularly focused on this inflation and raise rates as fast and as far as we want, right? Because uh, if the jobs picture is still strong, then they don't have to worry about that part. Also, though, because because the jobs picture is so strong, it's going to keep it's going to keep that pressure on you know on the economy and on economic growth. Basically, what the Fed is trying to do, they're sl- trying to slow down the economy. There's just there's no way, no other way around it. You have to slow down the economy to slow down corporate spending, to s- slow down consumer spending, to get that that inflation down a little bit, right? While the Fed, their perfect world is where they can slow down the economy just enough to bring inflation down, but they don't slow down, they don't choke the economy, right? They don't they don't send us into a recession, which was which would be negative economic growth. The Fed doesn't have a great track record at doing that. Okay, if you look back, if you look back in the past, they've often sent us into a recession. Usually, you know, it can be a mild one, but but generally they do send us into a recession, slows the economy down and brings inflation down. Another thing I'm worried about here is that we've never been at this point where they have injected so much money into the economy over the last really even since 2009 from the financial crisis we're still working through some of the money they they pushed into the economy there but especially after over the last 3 years with the pandemic globally it's been over like 15 20 trillion dollars just in the US it's been 10 trillion dollars plus that the fed federal reserve the central bank plus the uh, the the government has really pushed into the economy to I mean, un- understandably, keep us out of a depression. But when you push so much money into the economy for stimulus and it's got nowhere to go, then it is going to push up asset prices. It is going to push up stock market prices. It is going to push up other prices as well and stoke inflation. And-, and now they have to bring that back. They have to bring a lot of that money that they've pushed into the economy back. And we've just never been at a point where, where they have to draw back so much money out of the economy. And it is going to affect stocks. We're already down about 20% on that broad stock market index, the S&P 500. The average, rece- or the average bear market, so the average stock market crash over the last 90 years has been 28%, right? 28% down from the peak, which would mean we'd still have at least you know, another 8% or so down from the, uh, from the peak. The peak was right around last November. The average bear market has lasted about nine months, nine to 15 months on average. Now, the numbers skewed a little bit though, because some of those stock market crashes in the past have not been followed by a recession. The ones that were followed by a recession, which is, I think, where we're, what we're looking at now, have been a little bit deeper and a little bit longer, right? So the ones that have been followed by a recession have been down closer to 35, 40, 45% on average down from the peak, which would mean we have a, a lot longer a lot further to go on stock prices as they head lower. 
it certainly sounds like our economy is threading a needle. You've just given us a pretty technical analysis. Your credentialing is as a CFA, a chartered financial analyst. Tell us a little bit about that credentialing and what that means. Sure. A lot of people get it confused with the CFP, which is the Certified Financial Planner, right? And I like to say the CFAs, they, they work on Wall Street, right? It's the financial analysts, it's equity analysts. So they're going to be working with, they're going to be working as stock analysts for the big banks. They're going to be working for venture capital firms like I did, or private wealth management. So they're, they're generally analyzing stocks, analyzing other investments, putting portfolios together for the highest possible return at the lowest, lowest risk. The CFP, that certified financial professional. So whereas the CFA works on Wall Street, the CFP works on Main Street, right? The CFP, that, that financial planner, they're going to be working with people with their insurance, you know, with mutual funds, with index funds, things like that. Just uh, trying to get them to that planning idea in that aspect. Not to say that CFAs don't work with Main Street. In fact, it's the reason why I started on YouTube is, is to work closer with regular investors and Main Street investors. But generally, it's more of that analyst, that analyst role and capacity. So we talked a little bit about your credentialing. You also previously joked about how us old guys uh, remember <laughs> inflation in the 1980s. You and I have been through a number of recessions and downturns, right? There was It has. There was the early 2000s. There was the Great Recession in 2007, 2008. Tell me some of the things you've drawn from experiencing those recessions as you're thinking about what may happen today. Well, you know, over the last year, it's really struck me that my experience is really unique in being able to, to talk to new investors right now. Because I started investing uh, while I was in the Marine Corps in 1999. Of course, the perfect time to start investing, right? Because we <laughs> yes. all know what happened the year after that, right? So I have gone through, I, I started at the market peak, you know, saw that saw, saw my portfolio just crash and crumble during the dot-com bust made all the same mistakes that new investors do before I actually started learning about investments and started you know, studying for, for the CFA charter, started working in the industry. I, and I think it's very similar to what a lot of new investors are going through right now. A lot of new investors just starting out over the last couple of years have seen nothing but higher stock prices. And, and really, they've been ingrained. They've got that perception that stock prices always go up and they only go up and they go up by 15 and 20% a year. They're you know, they're, they're a little bit disillusioned now because they are starting to come back to normal, what a normal stock market looks like and, and those crashes that, that do come. So, you know, I've, yeah, I've seen it all. I've, I've experienced it all firsthand. And I wish I could say I avoided a lot of the mistakes just by, you know, experience and learning and that kind of thing. But, but I think, you know, our, our biggest lessons are our biggest, that where we, where we draw the, the best disciplines and the best learning from is from our mistakes and from our pain. And I've got a lot of pain in investments. I feel like especially new investors get a lot of advice. I mean, how many times have we heard people say, oh, a recession is coming by the dip? On the other hand, I hear just another group of experts that say, stick to your financial plan. Now is not the time to change. As he talked about a little bit in my introduction, we most of us feel like a recession is coming. How do we know if it's time to wait it out or take action? I feel like this is a pivotal question for us to address as we're, as we're looking down at this possible abyss? Well, it, it is the question, right? Uh, it is always the, the question of, you know, what do you do now? Where do you see the market going? Should you even try to see where the market is going and changing that plan? I've found that, that, 90% of the time, it is it is best just for most people just to stick with that plan. Do not stress out over the market. Do what you do best, which is, you know, whatever, whatever you do as your nine to five, you spend time with your family, you know, enjoy, enjoy your life. Do not worry about the market and what stocks are, are doing because it can, it can tear you up inside. What I like to say, what I like to do is, well, one part is for those that need that, that have that itch, right, to try to analyze the market, to try to pick stocks, to try to do things like that, have a very small portion of your portfolio, maybe 10% of your money in, in that kind of idea, in that, okay, this is what I'm going to do with, you know, these are the stocks I like, this is what I'm going to do if the market does this, or kind of that, that stock picking and investing kind of idea, right? Have just 10% of your money. What that's going to enable you to do is to scratch that itch, you know, to feel like you're trying to, uh, to get that little extra return, you're trying to do something with your money. And that's going to enable you to 
keep a hands-off approach to the rest of your money, to that 90% that is still locked in that financial, that long-term financial plan that is ultimately going to make you the most money. You know, just watching your watching your stocks go up, you know, slow and steady over decades in that in that portion, right? So for those of you that, that really feel like you need to be doing something, that you have that itch to scratch for stock picking and, and analysis, yeah, do it just with just a small portion of your portfolio. The other, the other side, you've got maybe 50, 60% of your money in just a handful of ETFs of exchange-traded funds or, or funds that cover the broad asset classes, you know, cover, cover within each asset class or diversified, going to get you those long-term market returns, right? You don't even have to worry about it with maybe 30% of your, your, your portfolio. Maybe you can invest in individual stocks that are also long-term that you still don't want to touch too much. But yeah, and just just kind of have that hands-off approach with the good portion of your portfolio, right? Because we tend to second-guess ourselves. We, we tend to panic or get over, overly excited and exuberant and make the wrong, the wrong decisions. The other thing I would say is if you are going to be changing your portfolio or, or making making investment decisions, especially around times when it is so stressful right now. We see stock prices crumbling every every day and it is so stressful on people. You need a formal strategy. And that means writing this out on a piece of paper, writing it out on the computer. Again, us old timers, we still write things out on on paper, but you know, I know that the kids love the computers these days. Uh, you know, write it out somewhere. And Basically, what you're saying is, you know, with the cash I have or with the money I'm going to invest to take advantage of these lower stock prices, and that's something I want to I want to cover next is the real opportunity in these stock market crashes and these recessions. But, you know, this money that I am going to invest or these changes that I'm going to make, I'm going to wait until these points in the market, right? So, for example, we said the S&P 500, that main stock market index is right around 3,900 right now. It's about 20% down from where it was uh, at the peak last November, about 4,800. I'm going to wait until, and this is just an example, you say maybe I'm going to wait until the stock market does get that 30% down from the peak. It'd be about 3,500, 3,400 on the S&P 500. And at that point, maybe I'm going to invest a third of my money, or or I'm going to make some of these changes. I'm going to buy into those stocks that I think are now cheap, but I'm going to save back, you know, another two thirds or so. And then I'm going to wait until the stock market's down to maybe 3,100 and then do that. And then again, maybe down to 2,800, right? What this does is it, it starts putting money, money to, to work for you quickly, you know, right? So if the market does fall a little bit more to 3,500, you're putting that money to work. So if eventually when that bull market comes around, then you're going to have that money working for you and you're going to make returns on those stocks. But it also keeps some money back for if stocks do continue to fall lower, right? So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You're putting your money to work as the stock market falls, but you're keeping some, you know, some dry powder back to invest later. It also, more importantly, though, it takes that guesswork. It takes the stress out of trying to time the market like this, right? You're not really timing the market. You're just setting points at the market where, where you're going to make these big decisions. And you're not trying to do it on a day-by-day basis. Because I see so many investors, they watch the market every single day. They stress out, right? It causes causes the gray hair and the, the lost hair, which you can see how, how much I've stressed I was about out. Say, you you nor already. I have much of that to begin with. But. Yeah. You know, I've, I've stressed <laughs> out already. I, I had to learn this the hard way to, uh, to stop stressing about the stock market. But, you know, I see too many investors, they stress out every day. They think, okay, is this the time to, to go all in? Are stocks at their bottom? Should I invest? I don't want to miss out on it, right? And eventually, the stress just becomes too much. And they make those, they make those rash dishes and they push all their money into stocks. And of course, you know, they, they just continue to watch stocks go lower, right? And it is, it is just a, a, such an unnecessary, unnecessary kind of, kind of life you know, decision there. So what this does, it just takes the guesswork and, and the stress out of it by formalizing that plan. You have that plan. You're going to stick with it. You don't have to stress out over the market each, every day. You know, you're going to get the best of both worlds with this, with this kind of a plan. You know, two things you said that I want to reiterate. I, I love this idea of the 90-10 portfolio, right? 90% is more your long-term investments. 10% is to play with. The reason why I love this is with that 10%, you can strike out and it probably won't affect your life that much. On the other hand, if you hit a home run with that 10%, it may have a huge impact on your financial future. So to me, that sounds like a win-win. I also wanted to say, again, this idea of writing out an investment plan, especially when we become more and more illogical as the stock market goes farther and farther down. So I think it's good to have that written out. 
There's something about recessions. It seems like everyone I've been through, you have this crop of experts who say, no, this time is different. And it seems like every recession, we get that group of people who says that now people are probably saying this time is different for what I can see is at least two main issues. One is inflation, which we talked about a little bit. The other is that we've had such a long-term high on equity returns that people believe that the duration and the amount that equities drop is just going to be longer and harder that we've seen in the past. Tell me what you feel about about these two issues. Is this different in your mind than any of the previous recessions that at least we've been through? Can you draw distinct differences that are actionable? Sure. We we always laugh when people say this time is different, right? Because it's kind of a kind of the boogeyman in analysis, right? Because they say it's never different. It's there's always commonalities. Like like Twain said, right? While history history never repeats, but it often rhymes. Okay, so there are there are often commonalities. I think with with this one, obviously, we can make the direct the the direct relationship with the seventies and eighties when when inflation was so high and the Fed really really had to be aggressive to bring it down. Back then, we saw Chair Volcker of the Fed, in fact, spurred what we call now the Volcker moment, where he he just you know just crammed interest rates so high that it did choke off the economy uh, there in 1981-82 I think interest rates I, th- I think interest rates hit double digits like like 12-13% you know so so he really did so we we can really see a point where inflation was so high and and what the fed did about it and what it did to the economy right and i think that's very that perspective is something that that a lot of people are going to have to come to come to grips with right now the differences, obviously, uh, again, are what we talked about with the, the just the sheer amount of stimulus the Fed and, and the federal government has pushed into the economy, uh, $10 trillion. We've only got a $20 trillion economy. So basically, almost half of the economy was pushed out, you know, into as cash into the economy over the last few years. So that's just and to, to see this in action, you only have to look at a stock chart of the uh, the Nasdaq, the S&P 500 or or many many stocks over the last few years. You see a pretty pretty natural progression up 10 12 12% a year from from 2010 through 2019. You know, we had a really good 2017, 2019 was uh was pretty good, fairly slow sloping. And then something happened in 2020 and stocks just went this way. They just went exponential. It was it was just super normal growth. And so, you know, anyone that, that has invested for as long as we have, you, you just have to look at that and say, okay, something broke, you know, and to fix it, it's probably going to be uh, probably going to entail some pain. So there are, there are commonalities to this recession. There are differences that, that I think it, it could be, uh, you know, a little bit deeper than, than what we've seen in the past. Now saying that, again, I, I want people to take the perspective, uh, kind of a counter, counterintuitive perspective here. I see so many investors get excited, get get exuberant, and just love to push money into stocks as stock prices are going up. That's when everyone wants to invest. But then they panic and sell out of their stocks, or they, they just quit investing completely as stocks are coming down, which... If you think about it, as you're, you know, as stocks are going up and you're investing, you never know when that's going to be the peak. You never know when, okay, I bought stocks now at this new high. Is that going to be the peak for this market? Are stocks going to be falling now? On the other hand, uh, as stocks come down, you know, during a stock market crash, these are these are guaranteed price discounts, right? Because you know, you look at a, a hundred year chart of the stock market, and I guarantee you, the the only thing guaranteed there is stocks do eventually rebound and they do eventually hit new highs. So the only guarantee right now is that you are getting stocks at a discount from from what from their prior peak from what they were. So this is this is a, an undeniable opportunity for investors to invest. Now again, I, I don't think you should push all your money into stocks all, all at once because I do believe stock prices are coming down. But you do want to invest regularly. Keep that habit of investing. Invest regularly at different points to to take advantage of those lower prices. Another thing I would say is, again, you know, I see so many people just sell completely, sell out of their stocks completely, swear off investing. You know, why, why sacrifice that money? Why put that money, you know, in an investing account if it's only going to lose money and you're not going to be able to spend it, right? So, so a lot of people just stop investing and say, you know, I'll come back when the market's back. Of course, they wait too long. They wait, you know, two or three years after the bull market has started and they've missed out on a lot of the gains. You know, these, these bull markets, when, when a bull market does start, it tends to be, you know, 15, 20% in those first years and a big portion of the, uh, of the entire bull market. 
So people just wait way too long to get back in there. Plus, you know, they've stopped investing. They're now using that money to buy to buy mocha coca frappuccinos <laughs> at Starbucks, right? To buy, you know, the other essentials like uh, Pop-Tarts and things like that. <laughs> and their their expenses have crept up with that extra income, right? You have that income creep that gets us all where you have you all of a sudden have a little bit more money to spend and your expenses kind of creep up to ma- to match that. Right. So what happens is when they do want to start investing again, it's very difficult. It's difficult to find that extra money to, to invest. Right. Because your expenses are now are now much higher. So I would just say, you know what, just keep investing, keep that habit of saving, putting money into your account. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to buy stocks with that money that goes into your investing account. You can keep it in cash and wait for those those different points in your strategy. But definitely keep that keep that habit of investing, of putting money into your stocks, because it is going to make it so much easier to take advantage of those lower prices when they do come around. And it's going to keep, make it so much easier to uh, to just keep investing and, and enjoy what is really, you know, what Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world, that compound interest. Actually, it's a, it's interesting that uh, what time does to your investments. I saw a statistic uh, last week that I just love. Warren Buffett. Everybody knows Warren Buffett. One, at one point, the richest man in the world, something like, uh, you know, over $70, $80 billion right now and about 80 years old. He, ha- he has made more money since he reached 65 Started investing when he was about 15, right? So he had about 50, 50 years of investing, you know, before he reached 65. He has made more money since he was 65 than he did that entire 50 years preceding, right? And it's just the power of compound interest. You know, he had something like $50 billion when he turned 65. And if you make just 10% on 50 billion, that's $5 billion a year. You know, so you really start to see how that money that because you're keeping that habit of saving, of investing every single month, and you just let that grow over time, you really do start to see how that power of compound interest of that money, making money on itself every single month, every single year really does add up. You know, I I love the message that we have to keep investing, especially as the stock market is going down, keep investing in equities because long-term that's probably going to give us the best returns. Help me understand a trend that's currently driving me crazy. All I hear is people talking about I-bonds. I-bonds, I-bonds, I-bonds. I-bonds, okay. And while I get that there is a good return, it's an inflation-based return, so it's not as good as the actual just naked number is. I feel like we're missing part of the narrative and people are taking their money that was allocated for equities and deciding to throw it into I-bonds because they think it's safer. Tell me, is that a mistake? Am I right to be annoyed by this trend? I mean, there are trade-offs to it, but I honestly, I do think it is one of the best opportunities for investors right now. You're limited to $10,000 each person. So it's not like uh, you know someone can take all their money, uh, generally, all their money out of equities and sell everything and, and really leave the market. So- now with with I bonds, okay, so they set the rate every six months. Right now it's nine point six percent, which is a, an amazing rate for any kind of a safe bond investment. Uh, you are locked in for a year. You cannot sell for a year, which I think yeah, I think we're going to need that kind of protection, capital protection for even maybe even longer than a year. But I think a year is really kind of the minimum, uh, and, and for that amount that you want to you want to protect. Uh, if you do sell with before five years, then you give up three months worth of interest, right? So that nine point six percent, or or wherever the interest rate does go, then that is calculated on a monthly rate, and you give up three months of that, which you know, if you hold them for 18 months, year and a half, then it is still going to be a very strong, very, very good interest rate on, on that investment. So I would say, you know, it's it's a great way to protect protect your money. Basically, it is a savings bond. So it is guaranteed backed by the full faith and credit of the, uh, the U.S. government. I kind of hear some snickers out there. But if the U.S. government stops paying on its savings bonds, we're going to have a lot more problems than, than just money and, you know, the financial markets. It's, it's going to be, you know, grab your Pop-Tarts and head for your shelter. So they are they are completely safe. You know, as far as, you know, I, I wouldn't tell people to sell out of their stocks to to invest in i bonds i would say you know take any of your free cash any of your cash investments or 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 anything like that and invest or you know you can you can invest in i bonds as as many as as often as you want you know every month you use that money from your paycheck to to buy a little bit more in your i bonds account there's no fees if you use treasurydirect.gov to invest to buy directly from the treasury so i wouldn't necessarily 
you know, sell out of your stocks because of course, you know, you're selling at a, at a loss, the market down 20% already, but you are, you do need some protection, you know, against further losses on the market. And, and generally, you know, generally people, investors are just so underexposed to those safe kind of investments like bonds, like other diversifying investments, like real estate and, and other alternative assets. So, you know, it really does a lot of, a lot of investors really do need to start adding some exposure to some of these safer investments. You know, preferably it would be when the market is rising, you know, so, so you're not selling stocks at a loss, but definitely you're getting in that, getting in that diversified portfolio kind of idea. We are talking to Joseph Hogue. He has appeared on Bloomberg and CNBC and led a team of equity analysts for a venture capital research firm. He holds a master's degree in business and a chartered financial analyst designation. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Hey, everybody. I am incredibly excited to announce that my book, Taking Stock, a Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life, is now available for pre-order on Amazon or wherever you buy books online. That's right, the book officially drops August 2nd, but you can order it now so that you receive it right then and there on the day it launches. The easiest way to do that is to go to earnandinvest.com slash preorder. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash P-R-E-O-R-D-E-R. And it'll give you a chance to take a look at this book, which is the culmination of all my experiences in personal finance and financial independence. With my experiences as a hospice doctor dealing with the terminally ill and what they have taught me about their regrets, about life, and yes, even about money, I can't wait for you all to get a chance to read my book. I've been working on it for years, and it's all coming to life. Order it now for pre-order, and you'll get it on August 2nd. Now back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Joseph Hogue. His YouTube channel, Let's Talk Money, has over 550,000 subscribers. Joseph, right before the break, we were talking about increasing the bond allocation or safer allocation, especially in more stable times when equities are rising. So obviously, we don't have to take on a loss on them to sell them and then put them into safer alternatives like bonds. What's interesting is this has also been a time of the expansion of, in general, the alternative investment marketplace. I feel like there are more alternative investments than ever. I'm not just talking about crypto. There's crowdfunding of real estate. There's crowdfunding of farmland. There's syndications of all sorts of things out there. There's securitization of artwork. Talk to me about the role alternatives play in general in a a well-diversified asset allocation, especially now where things seem so unsure in the stock market? Well, I think, you know, alternatives can definitely play a role in your portfolio. I don't think most investors necessarily need a lot. I would, I would put this in that 10 to 15% of your portfolio where, where you're just trying to, you're trying to play around with it. You're having fun with your money, that kind of thing. 
to satisfy that itch, right? You you might have maybe obviously some farmland or, or real direct real estate exposure or even real estate stocks and other real estate projects within that that larger diversified part of your portfolio. But for most people, I don't necessarily think that, that you need to to stress out about the extra returns that you could get from from a lot of these alternative assets. Now that said, I do invest in in cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and Ethereum. I own farmland and real estate as well as you know some startup companies in venture capital. But for the most part, I think it's it's something that investors can do if they want to, if they have that itch and they want to explore that uh, that idea and that topic. But it's not necessarily something that that you have to feel obligated to to learn about. The best thing uh, alternative investors can or alternative investments can actually provide kind of an interesting conversation piece, for lack of a better a better word, for your investments or or to make investing fun or interesting or motivating to you. Some of these like uh, investing in wine. I've started investing in wine over the last couple of years, and, and it's just been amazing learning about the different regions, the vineyards, going to wine tastings is always fun and, and learning more about wine just to be able to know more about that investment, right? So it's it's a great way to to motivate yourself in a topic for investing. Farmland as well. Coming, you know, an old Iowa boy like myself, obviously farming and agricultural was a big part of the state economy. So I've always enjoyed, you know, kind of that, that aspect of investments. And there's, and again, as we were talking about earlier with this 10 or 15% of your portfolio that, that you have these alternative investments that you have a little bit more shorter term investments and, and that trading's kind of sense, then you don't need, you don't, you don't need very much, right? If, you know, if you've got just, Two percent of your money, or one and a half percent, even in cryptocurrencies, and they go tenfold over the next ten years. That's a eleven percent. You know, that's about eleven percent return on your entire portfolio just from that one and a half percent, right? If you lose that one, one or two percent, it's really not going to affect your your overall wealth or your overall path to financial success. It's a great way to kind of get the best best of both worlds, get those higher super normal returns if they do come around, but not totally destroy your portfolio and keep your keep yourself on the path to to those investing goals. So that's definitely what, where I would put those alternative alternative investments. Make sure it's something that you enjoy looking at, you enjoy analyzing, you understand. I think the worst thing you can do is get into some of these, you know, like you talk about syndications, these crowdfunding sites, things like that, invest in something that you have no idea how it works. You just Heard it from the cab driver, from the Uber driver, that it's a great investment. And so you rushed out to put a lot of money into it. These alternative investments, you really do need to, need to understand how they work, want to, you know, want to, want to understand better how they work and, and follow them, you know, on a, on a year to year basis. You mentioned briefly Bitcoin and Ethereum. I don't want to go all the way down the rabbit hole, obviously, sure. but how durable do you think the crypto craze is? Do you think this is something that's going to be around in 10, 20, 30 years, or do you think it's going to burn itself out? Well, I think the real, the real staying power behind cryptocurrencies is that blockchain technology, right? We're just starting to see how the blockchain is used in different industries, especially healthcare, you know, a lot of the other industries where, where you need that, uh, that decentralized control over it and that, that, record, that, that record maintenance, right? So the, so the blockchain technology is here to stay. It is, it is changing the way a lot of industries work. Now, under that, you know, the way the way cryptocurrencies work intrinsically. Now, obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation and investment in cryptocurrencies beyond this, but intrinsically, how cryptocurrencies work is they work as a way to verify changes in that blockchain technology, right? Changes in that spreadsheet, that that online spreadsheet that is blockchain. They they need these cryptocurrencies to verify each change in those, right? So we do need, you know, cryptocurrencies on top of those those blockchains. Now that said, there are a lot of cryptocurrencies that <laughs> have no use whatsoever. They they do not they're not used in any kind of a blockchain. These blockchains aren't used in any kind of technology or any kind of industry or anything like that. And and you know, <laughs> all you have to do is look at the name for these. These are the, you've got the the main cryptocurrencies, right, that are used on on the main blockchains like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Algorand, things like that. And then all the other ones are are in a category called poo coins, right? You know, mm-hmm. shit coins. And so you only have to look at the larger category name to understand these are not long-term investments. These are trading and you know, short-term investments that whether you make them or not is is your choice, but they don't have a lot of value behind them. As we do get get a, a huge crash in cryptocurrencies, I think a lot of these coins are gonna are, are gonna die out. 
you know, they're going to lose all their value. People are going to just sell them out. But we will see, we will see Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of those other larger coins, you know, used continuously in those, that blockchain technology. And this is just something that happens with new asset classes. We saw it in 2017 when, when Bitcoin fell something like 85%, 80, 85% from its highs. It's now down similar. I think it's now down something like 60, 65%. And so it's just that, that kind of cycle of boom and bust in new technologies new assets, that kind of thing. But I, but I do think, you know, we will see new highs in, in these larger coins. We will see them continued to, uh, to be used in the blockchain and, and as investments. You know, besides that, a lot of these, a lot of these coins, the, the larger coins, as well as the stable coins, which peg their, their value at, you know, at the dollar are being used in others' transactions as well, you know, as international foreign, foreign, foreign transactions, because they are instantaneous. They are very low fees. You know, they, they cut fees for, for currency transactions as well as corporate, you know, international transfers and things like that. They cut fees by more than half. So they do have a very real and very intrinsically valued in, you know, outside of just, you know, just somebody and selling them. On the, on the investment uh, purpose alone. When we talk about crypto, when we talk about alternatives, and more specifically, often when we talk about stock picking, what we're really doing is talking about this idea of beating the market. There are basic market returns. And we do these things to enhance those basic returns to maybe do a little bit better. Is that the goal? And especially, again, I want to keep this in mind with the fact that we feel like we're a little bit on a precipice right now of we we're, we have a major stock market drop and we feel like we're on the precipice of a recession. Should our long-term goal be to beat the market here? Or if not, what should it be? And this is going to, this is going to sound crazy coming from a guy who has made his, made his living in you know, financial and stock analysis and finding those, the best investments and things like that. But no, it should not be your goal. Beating the market, getting those, those extra super normal returns should not be your goal. Your goal should be meeting those, those, very specific, unique financial goals, unique to yourself, right? Everyone should have what they're going to do with that money, right? What they're going to do with their money in retirement for tuition, whatever they, whatever goals they have, build a mental picture around that. And we're talking a complete story around what you're going to do in retirement, what your days are going to look like, who are the people going to be around you? What that's going to do, it's going to motivate you to keep investing, to keep, keep that habit of saving and investing for that, you know, for that mental picture, but that should ultimately ultimately be your goal, just having the money set aside to to meet those goals, right? And I think what what people generally find when they when they really do the numbers and figure out how much that's going to cost and how much they need and how much they need to invest, they don't necessarily need to beat the market, right? They don't need these huge returns. They need an average, you know, six, seven, eight percent annualized return on what they're saving every month and every year to meet those to meet and even sometimes beat those goals, right? So I think people try to overcome or people are overcomplicating investing, trying to beat the market all the time and uh, and pick stocks when you really don't need to, right? So it just it goes back to that idea of having a core part of your portfolio. And what 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 I like to recommend is called the core satellite strategy of investing, right? You have that core part of your portfolio, maybe 60-70% in ETFs and a handful of of funds that give you that market return that you don't even have to worry about, right? Because it is so diversified across stocks, bonds, other things, you're getting the market return, no more, no less, and you really don't even have to worry about it, right? You've got another 20 or 30% of your money that, that you have in some, maybe some individual long-term uh, stock picks. You generally don't have to worry about those either because they are long-term. These are the companies that you know and love that you think they're, they're, they're changing the world in which we live in and they're going to be around for 20 or 30 years and they're going to get you some, some good returns as well. And then for that, you know, that 10, that 5, 10, 15% of your money, basically that is only there to, uh, to satisfy that itch. You know, if you have, if you feel that need because you know, a lot of us, we do feel that need to, to, to analyze stocks or, or we just enjoy it. You know, like I said, with the wine investing, with farmland investing, with the cryptocurrencies, we enjoy looking at these different investments. We enjoy picking stocks and really, you know, looking at, looking at stocks at a more granular level. And if we didn't have that 10% of our portfolio where we were able to do that, we would just, we would feel that urge to mess with the other 90%. And we would generally probably mess it up, right? Because we would be trading in and out of those long-term investments and, and making those bad decisions. That 10% of your portfolio, that is only there if you do feel that need to pick stocks, try to beat the market and really, you know, get that super normal growth. 
But the goal should be with this 90% of your portfolio that is going to get you those long-term returns and get you to those financial goals. What I love about your answer is often people don't consider the fact that reaching their goals may mean a return that is maybe a little lower than the market. And in fact, when it comes to investing, what we're really talking about is toggling risk and reward. So when you decide your reward can be a little bit less and still meet your goals, it gives you the opportunity to also decrease your risk quite a bit, which leads to a very stable portfolio. And I think that's a really important message to hear so that we don't keep on getting caught up on this idea, I need to make 10% or 12% on my money, or I have to meet the S&P 500 and whatever it does. And the truth of the matter is, many of us can actually reach our financial goals without having to do that. And we can do it in a much more safe manner, which I think is really important. All this leads me to ask you, you've got the training, you've got the certifications. There are a lot of us out there who are DIYing our portfolios and DIYing our asset allocations. Tell me your your opinions of that. I mean, do you feel like your average person is knowledgeable enough to put together their portfolios in such a way that it fulfills their needs? That fulfills their needs? Yes, I do. I I think there is a lot of information out there on responsible portfolio allocation and how to to make a portfolio as far as different assets and using that kind of 90-10 split or or that core satellite strategy. I think there is the the information out there for those people and, and it is available. Now, whether they uh, that that would be that would be kind of a rational investor, right? And we are not rational because we're human. Okay, so so most of us, uh, myself included, we get caught up in these these themes and these memes and these uh, you know these these bull market cycles where we do feel like like you said we do feel like we need to to get that highest return. We look at Tesla going up twenty or thirty percent a year, and if our very well planned portfolio of very long-term stocks and very long-term investments to beat our goals. If that portfolio is only doing 9%, even 10% or 11%, which is a great return. If that's not doing that that 20%, we feel like we're doing something wrong. We feel like we're missing out, that that fear of missing out. And, and we meet, we we end up making those bad investing decisions. We we sell, we sell our long-term investments, we sell out of a lot of the that 90% of our portfolio that is working for something that may or may not work or something that is so much higher risk. So so I do think, you know, I do think DIY investors, they, they can do it themselves. I, I say a lot of times, I say, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to have a portion of your, a part of your portfolio or some of your money in a, in a robo advisor or, you know, something, some low cost method, you know, advisory service, right? Something that's done for you, that's hands off. You don't have to worry about, and it is low cost. I think that's, that's the important part, right? Which generally those, those robo advisors are, are generally pretty low cost. You know, of course, you, you always need to be maxing out your 401k at work. That's often, you know, a big part of the, that hands off portfolio that you have because it's all in funds and it's really the best return you will ever get. It, it amazes me people that are not maxing out the company match on their 401k plans or, or even getting the, the tax benefits from contributing to an IRA, an individual retire, individual retirement account every year, right? But to, especially the 401k, if your company is matching even even thirty percent, you know, of what your deposits are. That is a thirty percent instant return. Nobody gets thirty percent instant return, right? And not not Warren Buffett, not Peter Lynch, nobody. So if you get a, an instant thirty percent return from that company match, you get as much as you can. And it's a it's a great way to have that hands off portion of your portfolio, right? Because you're not generally buying and selling and trading out of those four hundred one k funds. I would say that DIY investors, they, they have the tools available. They need to learn how to use them responsibly, you know, not, not get your investment advice from TikTok, uh, not, get your, even, not even get your investment advice from a lot of the, the YouTubers that have come up over the last couple of years that have no real experience in, in designing a portfolio for that long term. They're basically just investing in what's going up and, and that's what they're telling people to invest in what's going up, which always works until it doesn't. And we're seeing, we're seeing when it doesn't right now. So, so there are the tools available and it's, it's too bad that it, it's, it's, it's hard to tell everyone out there all at once, you know, what tools they should be using and what, you know, what sources they should be listening to because there are, there is so much other noise out there for even for the the so-called experts right the people that have formal experience and training you know we don't beat the market on a consistent basis either you know like i said 
I have the vast majority of my wealth and my money in a hands-off portfolio idea, stuff that, you know, is long-term investments I don't touch, you know, I don't even look at on a, on a, uh, on a month-to-month basis because I know it's there, I know it's long-term, and I don't want to make those bad, those, those human decisions, those, those bad investor behaviors that affect all of us, no matter what kind of experience level. I don't want to make those in that long-term portfolio. Well, Joseph Hogue, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. I feel like you really provided two important answers to questions I have. One is a recession is coming. Should we do something different? And the answer is that we should have mapped out our goals a while ago. Hopefully, we should decide what returns we need for those goals. And then we should toggle risk and reward in order to meet them. And maybe the first way to do that is have a written financial statement that elucidates what that is. That's point one. Point number two is, should we do something or should we stand still? A recession is coming. And maybe the answer is both. For 90% of our portfolio, it should be part of that written statement that's already been elucidated. And we should probably stand still with that. On the other hand, for that 10%, we can scratch the itch. We can go for the home run. Maybe we hit that home run. Maybe we strike out and whiff at that last strike. But either way, we'll be just fine. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where can people interact with you if they want to know more? First and foremost, what is going on with Joseph Hope? Sure. Well, really, right now it is just uh, I'm actually doing a podcast campaign where, where I am appearing on different podcasts and and really trying to trying to reach out to investors to lower the uh, you know the lower the energy level just or lower the stress level just a little bit because as stocks do fall further, I see a lot of investors panicking, selling out of their stocks, making a lot of those bad decisions that we've talked about. So I just want to help investors change their perspective to understand that these are actually the, some of the best times you can invest. You make your money in a recession and in a stock market crash, right? That's where you make your your best returns. So just Stay calm, stay calm and uh, carry on investing, right? As, as they say. And what's the best way to reach out and ask you questions or if they want to learn more about you or your platform? Sure. Well, I love, I love it for, loved it, love it for everybody to, to come to the uh, YouTube channel. Let's talk money and join the community there. I do videos usually about three times a week. I answer the, the comments and we'll do a live stream every, every other week where I, I get to get that closer face to face connection with everyone and, and answer, answer questions. So yeah, yeah, you know, step by the, uh, the, the YouTube channel, Let's Talk Money. I also have a blog called mystockmarketbasics.com. It's really a resource where I share not necessarily the stock picking and the trading and the strategies, but more that just the stock basics, right? The very core concepts of investing to make investing easy again for, for people to start and, and for to carry to keep investing, right? I, I think we overcomplicate investing. It doesn't need to be. There are just some core basics that if you get those right, that's 95% of uh, investing success right there. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. And by having myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Joseph Hogue. Doc, great being here. Thank you. That's a wrap. All right. I usually leave it recording just for a few minutes as we chat afterwards as part of the after show. Was there anything you think we didn't talk about? Anything that you were like, oh, I wish we hit this subject? Oh, wow. No, I mean, it was really inclusive. Um, you know, I, I think there's there's like little details, questions that, that people have uh, that, that we could have hit. But but I think they're they're so granular that... Uh, I mean, we went we went almost an hour, right? And I feel yeah, like yeah. sometimes sometimes I kind of went on rambling. So you know, I, I think for for brevity's sake, uh, I think we we hit everything. Um, you know, things like things like the you know the growth stocks. Uh, I, I think so many people are are so new to investing over the last couple of years and and have only ever invested in those growth stocks. They're seeing you know a lot of them with portfolios down eighty percent even yeah, and ninety yeah. percent because of those growth stocks because they're entirely invested in that. So you know, things like uh, Things like you know, why you should only why you shouldn't only invest in you know momentum or growth stocks. You know how to how to invest in uh, you know different sectors of the economy, different uh, different industries, different you know types of stocks. You know what's what's the difference between a growth stock and maybe more of a safety yeah. stock like utilities, consumer yeah. staples, uh, and then what to do with those growth stocks. 
uh, the fact that I mean, I think one an important point is that yes, as these growth stocks have fallen 70, 80 percent, you know, they are still the same growth company. So a lot of these, you know, whereas last year the valuations were just ridiculous on these things, like you know, like uh, SoFi, like Teladoc, uh, two of my favorite growth stocks. The valuations were just ridiculous on them, and they have come down so much. But they are still growth companies, growing their sales at you know twenty and thirty percent a year. Yeah, They're yeah. changing, changing our lives, really, right? So, uh, you know, whereas you know, it sucks to be down that much, and it's going to be in the red for a lot of people for a long time. But don't sell out of them because over the next ten years, you know, with valuations where they are now, over the next ten years, they could be fifteen, twenty percent annualized return. Uh, so they're great investments now. Basically, they're 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 the example of Amazon, right? In two thousand two, when it fell below six dollars a share, um, from from a hundred dollars in uh, I think nineteen ninety nine, it hit a peak of hundred dollars, fell down to less than six dollars a share in two thousand and two. Uh, a lot of people, you know, same, same yeah. exact same example would have sold out uh, because oh, this growth stock isn't isn't making me any, any more money anymore. It must not be a growth stock. Must not, must not be a good investment. Uh, and you know, a thousand dollars in Amazon two thousand two would have been half a million dollars uh, right now. You know, so one one thousand dollars one stock. Uh, so so yeah, just understand that a lot of these growth stocks that that people are disillusioned with now are now actually the best investment you can have. Yeah, part of the, you know the problem is twofold, right? One is some people just don't understand the technical analysis to know that this is a great growth stock, right? That's part mm-hmm. of it. Then the other part of it is some. People just don't have the strength and courage to stick with it, even when it's doing crappy, even if they know technically it's a good stock or a good yeah. company. And so it's like, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to have to be strong on both those points. And I think we see a lot of people, you know, shooting themselves in the foot because of that. Yeah, it's 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 in the discipline of investing, and and unfortunately, uh, for for so many people, for myself included, you only get that discipline through pain, uh, right? So through those bad experiences, through the bad decisions, uh, you learn from. Hopefully, you learn from them. Uh, the best thing you can do is learn from them and not make them in the future. Um, that's it's just something we all have to go through. You know, investing yeah. since 1999. Uh, you know, you've been investing just as long. We we've been through these, and we know the bad decisions because we made them. Because we uh, made so, them. Yeah, yeah. And we complained yeah. about them at the time. Yeah. What do so, you, you have, so, I mean, you have over a half a million YouTube subscribers. What do you think the temperature of, of your subscribers is? Do you think they're feeling optimistic? Are they feeling pessimistic? Are they afraid? Are they excited? Is it everything? Oh, afraid, uh, you know, uh, uh, still, uh, still hopeful. I think I, I actually did a chart of uh, the stock market cycle a co- couple weeks ago on the on the blog. A great chart, and it shows you know the the chart. So the boom cycle, and then the bust, and then with you know probably about twelve different emotions that investors go through. <laughs> and, and on the way down, it is very very much the uh, the stages of grief. Right? Yeah, the seven stages sure. of grief, and uh, and I think we're still in that. You know, in that denial stage for a lot of people where they're like, no, man, this is this can't be this. This isn't what the market really is. The markets make always makes me money. Um, you know, so some people are still in denial. Some people are, are even into the anger stage, right, where they're blaming yeah. the government or blaming whoever they can blame, short sellers, whoever. Um, you know, we're not quite level to that level of capitulation or just uh, uh, just complete uh, c- complete uh, despondency. Right, uh, we're not quite there yet. We will be, you know, within another ten percent. I think people w- will be around there. But, but yeah, you know, it, it is fear, it is disbelief, denial, uh, it is it's all all the uh, you know all the usual emotions that people feel, um, and a lot of people, you know, unfortunately. Unfortunately for us, right, that that you know have a business that evolves around traffic and and views and things like that. A lot of people are getting to that point where they just don't want to even look at it anymore. They're they're either selling out of their investments completely, or they're just not looking at their investments and they're just they're just tuning out, uh, which sucks because you know views are are, are way down and that yeah. and it's the wrong investing decision to take too. Yeah, it's hard. I know. So so on to the whole thing of being a content producer. Yeah, these are hard times because no one wants, like you said, no one wants to talk about it. Like our mm-hmm. our job is to talk about it, ups, downs, what to do, what not to do. And people do kind of like, I've had it, I'm done. Yeah. yeah. Which again, I'm lucky. I I don't really my my content is still more for my enjoyment and pleasure than it is for making a living. So that makes it easy for me. Yeah. Um, but 
but I, I feel, I still feel that pain as I look at numbers and as, as markets go down. So, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's too bad because uh, you'll also get the comments that, uh, you know, people that have only been investing for a couple of years and, and are used to stocks only going up and, and the stock pickers, you know, always being right. And now, and now they're coming back with, oh, you said this stock was, was, was a good investment. You said this was a good company and now it's down 20%, 30%. Uh, you know, you're, you're an idiot. Well, you know, it was, it's a good company, but everything is down right now. Okay. Yeah, you know, everything's totally. down 20 or 30, 40%. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit that perspective and, and that framing as well. But it's, it's just how it is. You know, this is what we go through every, every three to five years or in this case, 10 years, right? We really haven't had a, a good stock market crash. And, you know, well, since 2009, I mean, 2020 wasn't even really a crash. It was 23 days. So it really wasn't anything. Yeah. Yeah. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.